Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 237 of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, I don't know whether you can say it often enough or emphatically enough, but we live in really changing times, like turbulent, kind of crazy, like, hmm, not sure. We've seen quite this in our lifetime before, and there are very few voices making more sense of it these days, or at least trying to cut the way through the fog, than Ed Stetzer. Ed's my guest this week, and I think you're going to love this interview. It is wide-ranging. We go all over the place, as in, uh, is there a culture war? Is the church winning or losing? Hint. Ed and I would both think we're not exactly winning that one. Uh, Why does it matter? We talk about the Me Too movement. We talk about how to create a voice uh, on social media, also about future church trends, cultural trends. It's sort of all over the place, which makes it, in my view, awesome. And Ed is somebody who gets consulted all the time. You'll recognize him from USA Today, CNN, Christianity Today, a columnist for Outreach Magazine. He is the executive editor of The Gospel Project. He holds the Billy Graham Distinguished Chair for Church Mission and Evangelism at Wheaton College. He's also the executive director of the Billy Graham Center. And uh, he's also chair of the evangelism and leadership department in the graduate school at Wheaton. Oh, plus he writes about a thousand books. So <laughs> anyway, yes, I do ask him, Ed, how do you get it all done? And his, his answer is really interesting. It's a really good leadership development principle. So I think you're going to love today, man, we have got a great lineup lined up for 2019. If you haven't subscribed yet, and the statisticians tell me about 20% of you who would listen to a typical episode have not, just hit subscribe and we'll automatically send you content into your inbox. It's free wherever you listen to your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever. And uh, we got an exciting year ahead of us. So a couple of things I want to tell you about. First of all, what are you doing in terms of social media? Uh, Last year, one of the top episodes we did was with Clay Scroggins. We'll link to it in the show notes. And it was on the digital disruption. And here's the reality. Most churches staff 99 to 100% for what happens in person on the weekend and almost nothing for online. And one of the challenges you probably have is, well, it's just budget. You've got to check out Pro Media Fire. Uh, Because often church staff is overwhelmed to keep up with the demands of media And you think about all the things you could do and you're not getting done. And, uh, you know, that's an issue for everybody, including for us. Well, there is a brand new service just coming out called Pro Media Fire. They've got experience, but this is a brand new service that they are offering. And you are some of the very first to hear about it on this podcast. It's a cloud-based church creative team, and they provide unlimited graphic design services unlimited custom church videos for a monthly flat fee that honestly is pretty competitive. This team has over 30 years combined experience working in this field. So they have got a limited time launch special for listeners of this podcast, 10% off all plans for life and 40% off the media bundle for life with unlimited graphic design and video services. So head on over today to promediafire.com slash carry. 
You will not miss out on this launch special. If you do, that's promediafire.com slash carry, and you'll save, depending on what you do, between 10 and 40%. Also, hey, I don't know whether you guys do New Year's resolutions, uh, but we're going to do something a little bit different uh, this year. I've got some training for you that is absolutely free that is going to help you, I think, make the best of 2019. So a lot of you know, because I've talked about this, some of you are like ad nauseum, but you know what? We get feedback on it all the time because I think it's an epidemic. But I burned out about 13 years ago in 2006. And my life on the other side of burnout, totally different than on the front side of burnout. Plus, I'm leading like, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say 10x more than I did before I burned out. So Uh, And I'm actually enjoying my life. And the biggest thing that made a difference is I switched to using a new calendar. And I am giving you for free the exact calendar I use to maximize my impact and my leadership. So my life at home, also my life at work. Uh, This is the calendar that has helped me become, well, just kind of, you know, what I do today, manage it all. Plus, I walk you through in a free video how you can use it. So where can you get this calendar for free? It's for free for a limited time only. Head over to thehighimpactleader.com and you can download the free resource right now. So head on over to The High Impact Leader. I'm giving away the calendar I use for free. It'll fit on any device and I hope it helps you. Well, guys, uh, we are going to jump into my conversation with Ed Stetzer. And uh, I hope you enjoy all the places that this conversation goes. And once again, we do have show notes. It's just kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 237. There's also transcripts there too. If you hear something, you want to go back and search it or study it with your team. It's all there for you. Anyway, here's my conversation with Ed Stetzer. Ed Stetzer, welcome to the podcast. It's a thrill to have you on. It's like the highlight of my day. I mean, I'm on with Kerry Newhoff. It's like, I don't know. It's like, I, I'm kind of like being on with a celebrity. I thought you were going to say it's the highlight of my hour. I'm like, yeah, no, it's just true. It is an hour. It, it is, is the hour. hour. So yeah. <laughs> I hope it's the highlight of your hour. It is probably Ed, the best thing this great. hour. You and I, you and I have, you know, crossed paths many, many times over the years, uh, both in person and online. Uh, but it's really good to have you here and to pick your brain. You're one of those leaders who's built up, I think, a broad but also a deep a- area of expertise in the church world. So this is going to be a lot of fun. Thanks for doing it. Well, thanks. Glad to do it, man. Yep. And let's start here. You do see the wider church a lot, um, partly because of your role at Lifeway, in the books you've written, in the research you've done. Now you're at Wheaton College. You hold the Billy Graham Distinguished Chair for Church Mission and Evangelism at Wheaton, so you're meeting the next generation, the whole deal. What are some trends you're seeing, let's start positive, that really encourage you? Like when you look over the broad church, because it's always so much gloom and doom. Like what are you going, yes? Well, it is a lot of gloom and doom, but it's not always gloom and doom that's actual doom. It's sort of this, you know, evangelicals are in a season of self-loathing. And so they tend to read everything through the glasses of their discontent, which is fine. And I get it. Um, But now let's let's talk about positive. Well, for example, using the general social survey, which is the uh, most widely used source of religion data in the United States, University of Chicago does the study now every two years. We're at the highest level of regular church attendance in evangelical churches for young adults since the survey began in 1972, which again, always people, well, it's always a surprise to me, but seriously is. And people are, because I hear the doom and gloom, you know, there's a, 
a Newsweek cover story that came out in um, uh, would have been December. And it talks about, you know, the, the, the death of evangelicalism and uh, and it's just political. And, and what they keep saying is white evangelicals, white evangelicals. Well, I don't know about you. I mean, Carrie, you and I, we're white. We're evangelicals. evangelicals. I, don't, yeah. I don't actually think of myself as a white evangelical. I think of myself as an evangelical. And a third of evangelicals are actually people of color. So what you find is we're actually at the highest level, again, using the general social survey and what's called the RELTRAD. So all the, the, the doom and gloom of skies falling doesn't actual align with what we call real numbers. So I think that's encouraging. I think also I'm encouraged by the fact that among those who are uh, maybe younger, but not just younger, because it's becoming clearer in our culture that um, what is a Christian is different than what's not a Christian. And that wasn't always the case. Still, the majority of people in the U.S., in the low 70s in the U.S., in the high 60s in Canada, self-identify as Christian. But people are increasingly getting that kind of a Christian is different. Now, hopefully, sometimes that's bad because, you know, some Christians have made bad choices about our gauge or culture right now. But, but I think the difference is causing people to ask what's going on. And in many ways, what we're finding is for, for Christians, they're actually having to live their faith more seriously. The, high, the whole idea of being a nominal Christian is sort of declining. And as it declines, I think a more serious, robust faith for many is taking its place. Yeah, you know, that, that is interesting, because I think you're right. I don't know whether we've seen the disappearance of nominal Christianity, but we've certainly seen the decline in the last yeah. 10 or 15 years, for sure. Yeah, and you can actually, you can look ahead. If you look at the U.S. right now, and you put it into quartiles, uh, or just take the, the middle the middle half, the middle half, the 50% half in the middle is actually, calls themselves Christian, but they don't necessarily shape their lives or whatever around it. Uh, you got 25% who call themselves Christians and they, you know, and they, they it does impact their lives. You can actually measure it. 25% who just don't call themselves Christians. In Canada, the numbers are, are, are a little lower, but not dissimilar. But when you look to current college students using uh, one study called the ARIS, the American Religious Identification Survey, what they found is, Nominals about down to a third. So you're at 50% of the population as a whole in the U.S. In the U.S., you're down to a third in the next generation. So I think what's going away is nominalism. Uh, robust faith is not going away. There are, I mean, nobody really thinks that, it, no real researcher anywhere thinks that it is. Uh, what's going away is nominalism. What's growing is secularism, the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. The, so, so the country's becoming, both countries are becoming much more secular. You know, Australia leading ahead, UK leading ahead. Um, they're becoming much, much more secular, but the percentage of people who are devout isn't shifting. So that tells me there's still opportunity that the mission force might actually engage the mission field. So I want to go back to what you said about younger adult church attendance actually increasing, like the highest level since 1972, yeah. was it, when the study yep. began? Can can you That's say right. a little bit more about that? Because I don't think, I didn't know that. Well, I don't think a lot of people know. It is, it is in my, uh, my new book, and I kind of broke the news there. But anybody can, uh, anybody can actually find the data. It's you take the general social survey, you, uh, you run the rel trad over it, and it sorts by denominational tradition. And what you find is you're at the highest level ever. So right now, uh, slightly over 12% of Americans, 12% of young adult Americans, 18 to 29, say that they are attending an evangelical church on a regular basis. Now, um, I mean, like Protestants, it's obviously it's substantially 
lower, uh, particularly among the next generation. But I, I do think that that is worth noting. And, you know, by the time this will air, you know, you know, this is not a live recording, as people guess. Uh, I'll actually have released that into an article I'm about to about to run on a secular news site. Uh, kind of talks a little bit about the the Newsweek article that was kind of short on statistics and strong on opinion. And I was quoted in that article, and uh, so was several other evangelicals. And so it just helps to clarify that, you know, just so you know, no real researcher anywhere believes that evangelicalism is dying. Um, nobody anywhere. Uh, in Canada, where you are, you know, Reginald Bibby actually recently kind of walked back his earlier predition, uh, predictions of doom, uh, doom's too strong a word, of, of substantive decline, and actually now sees some pickup in the percentage of evangelicals. But Bibby would explain, and if your Canadians listeners would know who Reginald Bibby is, but no <laughs> American's going to know who Reginald Bibby is. Uh, but the he, he credits he he credits the the shift in migration patterns. So so again, right. that it's white evangelicalism doth not have a strong future, but the evangelicalism does. And I'm not saying the evangelicals are the only people who are the holders of the gospel, but I would say that gospel Christians have um, have an opportunity here. The world. You know, the sky's not falling statistically, but the ground is shifting. And the question is, in the midst of a shifting ground, when the country is becoming more secular countries uh, and the at the same time, uh, nominal Christians are actually leaving and becoming the nuns, will the church step up? Will Christians step up and show and share the love of Jesus in a broken and hurting world? That's kind of my hope. That's why I wrote Christians in the Age of Outrage, just to sort of say getting mad at a secular world is not what Jesus has called us to do. Yes, yes. It's really hard to love something you're angry with, right? It just well, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can't and war. Judgment's a terrible evangelism yeah. strategy. It, it, well, that's a great line, actually. You can't war at a people. You know, people talked about the culture war. You can't war at a people and reach a people at the same time. You yes. sort of have to make a decision. It doesn't mean you can't stand up for what's right and, and culture and more. But that's the challenge. You can't you can't ultimately uh, go to war and be on mission at the same time. Hmm. Um, just just so listeners know, because uh, you mentioned Canada a few times. First of all, 85 percent of listeners to this podcast are U.S. But for those who are Canadian and those of you who are always curious about my Canadian, you know, background, because here I am, you're in Chicago, I'm um, hour north of Toronto as we do this interview uh, via uh, remote. But um, I always think of Canada as a canary in the coal mine. You know, back 100 years ago, they'd put a canary in the coal mine because uh, if a toxic gas gets released, a fatal gas, canary dies first. So if you're on lunch break, you look over and the canary's keeled over, um, time to get out of the mine. And I feel that's what we are. We're 10 to 15, maybe 20 years ahead of the secularization curve in North America. So we feel those things. We're somewhere between the U.S. and Europe, I think, in terms of secularization. Um, but I, I would totally resonate with what you're saying, because basically the only reason left to go to church in Canada is because you actually love Jesus or you're curious and you're you're emerging out of your secularism or your spiritual spirituality or whatever you happen to believe and go, I wonder if there's something to this Christianity thing. I wonder if there's something yeah. to Jesus. Those are the only two valid reasons to go to church. The rest melted away in my parents' generation. And it does make a difference. The, um, you know, your, 
being Canadian, and I speak Canadian, as you can tell. Um, you married one. <laughs> the, I did marry one. That is true. That is true. But I, I think it's 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 worth noting there was a uh, you know one of the bigger denominations in Canada, kind of the non-Anglican, non-Catholic Canadian denomination. My my wife's parents were a part of, and it kind of at one point got down to in their Sunday school class. They just stuck around because they were good Canadians, peace, order, and good government. And it basically got down to they were in their Sunday school class. They were actually studying Canadian history because there was nothing left for them maybe to look at. And so <laughs> oh, and as and as awesome as Confederation is, is yeah. I don't know that that a Bible study doth make. But so I, so I do think that. The we should embrace the weirdness of the gospel, and mm. and and say you know depending on who you ask, the uh, the, the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada uh, says about eleven percent of Canadians are evangelical, and they count people by belief generally when they ask that question, and and that number has been relatively steady. I mean there was a decline, and but it's kind of steadied out and maybe yeah. grown in some ways as well. So. So it's a, but I would agree with you about the canary of the mind. And I think the order you can follow things are, I think you've got to leave Europe, uh, continent of Europe out of the conversation because it is just, it thinks just wholly differently than the English speaking Western world. Um, because I mean, this is where religious wars went on for on and on and on and on and on. And so there's a, there's a, uh, you know, in, in France, French revolution, you know, they, it went to completely secular. It, it went, I mean, a whole different direction. The most religious nation in the world, uh, self-identified Christian at one point was France to the point where it'd be one of the least religious, by the way. And that's what yeah. requiring people to be religious does. Um, but but if you look and you look at the U.S., U.S. is a real outlier statistically. And so you look at religiosity, we call it, and it's, it's, it's the U.S., it's Canada, it's the U.K., it's Australia, and it's New Zealand. And I think that path is a the most likely path. So I think that mm. the future of the U.S. doesn't really look like, like France, but it does look like Canada. Uh, and, and Canada looks more like the U.K., and the UK probably looks some like Australia and and to a point where New Zealand's actually a minority Christian self-identification in some parts. So, so I do, but I do think you're right. And so, um, I've had a few authors write on my Christianity Today space about, um, what it's like after the culture war. Um, you know, what does it look like to live, uh, for the gospel in a post-Christian, I mean, still the majority identifies Christian, but is it a post-Christian context in a way that may be different than living in the U S. So I think you're right on track when you explain it that way. Can you win the culture war? I think, first of all, um, no. But I think partly because, you know, one of the questions we asked at LifeWay Research was um, if there were a culture war, and I forget the exact wording, regardless of whether or not you use that language, uh, because I don't find that language helpful. I said, you know, what we asked the question, did Christians, uh, we asked pastors this, win, lose, whatever. And if there were a culture war, we kind of lost. And... You know, and so, um, so, so I think that um, you know, part of the reality of uh, of the moment is is that the people are unsure. So, because they might see, you know, they might see like a Doug Ford, or you know, the recent elections in Quebec, or they might see like uh, President Trump here. That there's been a sense of rising of kind of a different kind of nationalism, but even that is mostly moved on from some of the culture war issues. Um, mm-hmm. so there, there might be a nationalism, but you know, they're not turning back the tide on views of sexuality and gender and more. Abortion, and that's where a lot any of those abortion, things. others. Now, you know, president Trump has made some, you know, with the appointments to the Supreme court, 
Uh, and it's interesting because with Trump, he said um, he said he wanted to appoint judges that would overturn Roe v. Wade, which is the landmark law in 1973 that yeah. legalized abortion in all states. But what's interesting is he said he wanted to overturn that. But when he was asked about Obergefell, which is what made uh, same-sex marriage legal in the states, he said, oh, that's settled law. So it's interesting to me that, you know, <laughs> so, you know, Roe v. Wade is 1973 and we got to overturn that. But Obergefell, which was like Thursday, um, is settled law. But he sees the same uh, poll numbers that anybody else does. I mean, the culture has moved on. Uh, what you and I view on some of these issues, I mean, that's just out of the mainstream now. And part of what we're trying to do is sort of carve out space and place to say it should be OK for us to believe this in our communities as well. Well, I think and that's exactly where the discussion is in Canada now, because I remember our same-sex ruling from the Supreme Court came 13 years ago in 2006. Yeah. And I remember I was a lead pastor at the time. I remember getting the emails, the people knocking on my door in my office going, you must oppose this. And I, I didn't because, you know, the, the toothpaste was out of the tube. Like, you know, the boulders rolling down the hill. I'm I'm not going to stop this. The culture has been moving in this this direction for 3 years or for 30 years, 40 years. It you you it was it's almost an unstoppable force and it doesn't necessarily determine the future of the church or the future of the kingdom of God or the future of Christianity. I mean, you know, Christianity was born in a secular empire. Completely secular empire. And so it's one of those things that I've always found perplexing as a Canadian, I guess probably because, you know, the Canary's been in the coal mine for a long time here, that that people think the battle is going to be won in the culture. I'm not convinced we are going to win that one in the culture. Yeah, and the other things that in the state, the New York Times uh, columnist named Ross, uh, Ross Duthat, and he wrote an article talking about negotiating the terms of our surrender. And a lot of people resonated with it because you're trying to figure out um, if the culture's moved on, if you've lost, at the same time, you know, no one's coming to your church or my church saying you have to do this wedding or not. But at the same time, you know, Trinity Western, you know, is dealing yeah. in Canada. Um, and so there are consequences in it. And, you know, just as we're recording this, uh, you know, they basically uh, Canada reversed its ruling about the federal government's summer jobs program um, and uh, allowing, you know, space for people. And, you know, the, kind of, the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada was one of the people that spoke up on that. So it's kind of hard to know where that space is. You want to stand for what's right, but also you want to be able to say, you know, we should, as people of faith, and also, I believe this for, I don't think Jewish deli owners should be forced to sell ham. You know, I don't think Muslim store owners should be forced to sell alcohol. And I mm. don't think that Christians should be required to believe or participate uh, in certain things in their institutions. So it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing, though. And a lot of people are struggling with knowing how we walk through this new reality. Because we've lost, Carrie, we've lost our home field advantage, where mm. we sort of had this privileged position we sort of decided what was we decided the law we decided pretty much pretty much yeah no you're right and that's funny you you should mention that 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 was barely an issue here in canada just hit up the uh, non-profit and church space but a year ago the trudeau government announced that um because there's grant money for summer jobs that basically you had to sign off on the government's view of funded abortion, same-sex, everything, you know, basically Trudeau's values, his personal values. 
And that was something my MP called me, so on, where I said, and I read the legislation, and I'm like, whoa, this is a step further. This isn't a difference between the culture and what I believe personally. This isn't freedom of religion, which is protected by our Constitution. It's a move toward freedom from religion. Mm-hmm. And that is that is a massively different, you know, having studied constitutional law and political science in university. I mean, that is very, that is fundamentally different. And this is this is why I got upset. It impacted Christians, Muslims, Jews, anybody of any conviction. And often it was the Jews who were more upset than the Christians were about that because it was basically saying, we are going to tell you what to think. And so the government reversed that, which is really interesting. But that was different than just, I just think the world should be the way I think it should be, which, you know, you get to create your world that way. You might be able to craft a church culture, but okay. What is changing? We talked a little bit about fast changes in the culture, but what is changing fast in the church faster than most people realize? Yeah. You know, a couple of things I would say is that the growing sense uh, that, well, of course, some things, let me say first, some things are like the new normal now. Uh, and I got to tell you, I'm among the people who thought, I didn't think multi-site would catch on like it did. <laughs> I mean, I, I saw it as kind of a, a kind of an overflow option. Should have bought was stock, I, Ed. I should have bought stock. It's so true. Yeah. Well, you know, I also thought that, I also thought that Jeb Bush was going to be the Republican nominee. So what do I, what do I know? <laughs> um, but the, again, I think everybody sort of thought that. So it is what it is. So, you know, so multi-site's the new normal. But the reason I mentioned that as significant is, I think it's actually creating a new sense of community without necessarily proximity. And so hmm. what we're seeing is the rise of, if I'm already going to multi-site and watch it on a screen, can I stay home and watch it on the screen? And as a matter of fact, there was a Laura Turner wrote an article for the New York Times uh, in, yes, in which uh, we were December. cited. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, the, so I think that there's a sense that it has in some ways freed people to – sometimes stay positively in community when they're not in proximity. I think the challenge is, and, and Laura's article kind of pushed back on some of that, was that uh, I do think the best community is going to require feet and faces, not just electrons and avatars. But, mm. I, but I do think, you know, that IRL, that in real life still matters. But I, but I do think that for, for us to have multiple ways of engaging in community uh, is a good thing. So I think that's one of the things that surprised me and is a good thing is just how much we can wrap community in addition to proximity, but continue that community outside of the proximity with one another through electronic means. So I think that's quickly uh, moving in that direction. And and if done well, and, and you know, with, with wise stewardship and discernment, I think that can be a good thing to even accelerate. Um, I think that I hear a lot of people really passionate about the next generation. Um, and I, I think that's been something that I guess that comes in waves, but, um, you know, here at Wheaton college, you know, we hear, there's just a lot of excitement about what God's doing. You know, we, we've even had conversations is there, we, we, we have this, we have several large Christian schools in Chicago land area and they got together and talked about stirrings of revival, what God's doing. And so that's encouraging to hear. And I would say a, a strange thing. Um, I talked to Keller, Tim Keller, I guess we don't have to say his first name. We just say Keller. Um, I talked to, I talked to him, uh, was it last year or so, maybe a year or two ago about how evangelism seemed to be a kind of the low, lowest ebb in his lifetime. And, you know, I mean, 
if you go back to when like, Tim was a kid, you know, the evangelism explosion was everywhere. I mean, it was, everyone was doing yeah. evangelism conferences and we've certainly substantially waned at that point, but I gathered together evangelism leaders from 50 denominations just recently and they're starting to say, no, you know what, people, people are asking again, how do we, and they're finding new ways to do it. And, and it's not the same starting point. It's not necessarily the formulaic response, but I'm encouraged by what I see as the beginnings of a greater desire to show and share the love of Jesus, uh, not just be about us, but it'll be about God's mission in the world. Yeah, even in books. I mean, there's there's been a host of everything from apologetic books to sort of the ethic of love books that have come out as, you know, the lead in evangelism, which is encouraging. So I just I just ordered, I, I went online because, you know, I'm an evangelism professor. So I went online and uh, and I just, I don't I haven't read any of these books, so I'm not endorsing them. But, you know, I mean, I got evangelism after pluralism. I got the scandal of evangelism. I got cultivating an evangelistic character. These are all brand new books that uh, when I talked to my publisher three or four years ago, they said, if you put evangelism, uh, I talked to my agent three or four years ago, if you put evangelism in the title of a book, nobody will buy it. Well, now there's a there's a group of them that are coming out and re-engaging that conversation. I'm encouraged by that. I'm encouraged by that too. What are some things that should be changing faster in the church? I mean, I realize we could camp out here for an hour, yeah. but things that should be changing faster in the church, but just aren't. As you look yeah, I still I still think there's a very clear sense of um, consumer mentality. I think part of the challenge is we still live in a world where most people go to church uh, as customers of the religious goods and services that are distributed there rather than co-laborers in the gospel work. So and I think the challenge is and you and I have helped enough people to revitalize or renew their church, uh, that we help them to be more friendly to people, that sometimes we forget that basically making a friendly environment was, is actually great. And, you know, and Barnes and Nobles wants to do that. And uh, Barnes and Noble does. And so does, you know, I just went to the, the Apple store. They want to do that. But ultimately, we've got to move people from a friendly consumer-driven environment to being on mission that really, you know, it kind of goes from come and see you know, to deny yourself and take up my cross. That's a, that's a pretty huge journey. And I think that the consumer mentality is the great, I mean, it's really the great founding myth of our age and, and founding myth doesn't mean that it's not true, but it's, it's, it's the great reality that undergirds the triumph of the West. And it's very hard to both appeal to that, which we do in some degree, you know, make, make your church relevant. Well, why? That's you're trying to appeal to people so they might consider the truth claims of the gospel. But if you leave them as solely people who have respond, responded to a consumer-driven appeal, you end up with customers, not co-laborers. And the end result is uh, one day you're going to look back and you're going to have a room full of disgruntled customers who are going to leave Target and go down the road to, to Walmart because they're doing it better than you are. Yeah, is that... I, I really appreciate that. And, you know, on my space, on my blog, I go there almost every month, talk about relevance, talk about reaching new people, the whole deal. And yet what I have seen is I think it is possible to move people from a place of you're here at church for the very first time, we're really glad to have you, to die and take up yeah. your cross and follow Jesus. 
Can you do that transition in your view? What oh, yeah, makes yeah, yeah. for a successful transition? Yeah. Because, you know, the classic criticism, every time I open my mouth on that is, you know, Jesus didn't call, you know, call us to make consumers. He, yeah, he yeah. called us to make disciples. I've heard it a million times. And I agree with that. On the other hand, I think the idea of making church attractional, even if that model is peaked, was that church was incomprehensible or church was hostile or church was weird or church was yeah. inaccessible to those who came in. So it's a tension to be managed for sure. I'd love your thoughts on that. How do you make that journey? I, I think it's, um, yeah, I think it was unhelpful when people started to say, make a contrast between attractional and missional. Um, and I think it's unhelpful, um, and I don't believe, and, and I don't say that um, if you find ways to have your church be friendly to people who are outsiders, you want to call them seekers or whatever, um, that necessarily that means you create a consumer driven mindset. So, cause I, I heard those things definitively stated like you did and mm -hmm. it was, you know, so, I mean, obviously I'm a little bit, I mean, I just, you know, I just preached at Saddleback. So if there's a church that in many ways personified, yeah. um, that seeker sensitive approach, I mean, so I'm preaching there. So obviously I have not, I don't think, you know, they're bad or whatever, but on the other hand, you know, last week I preached at Moody church, which I can assure you hasn't asked the question, how do we make seekers comfortable for about <laughs> 150 years? Um, right. it's just a different kind of experience. And I think, um, so I think for, in both of those cases, there's some things you have to recognize, right? So when people come to Saddleback, maybe they've appealed to their, um, you know, modern sensibilities, right? It's contemporary church, it's relaxing, whatever else it may be. When we, people come to Moody Church, a whole lot of people come to Moody Church because they're in the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. We have several CSO members there or whatever, and they want an experience that's dignified and thoughtful. We have an orchestra and a choir and robes and, and, um, and more. But in both of those cases, there's still a sense that some attractional connection was there. So for hmm. me, attractional is not the problem. I would say pandering is a problem in any of those cases. Yeah. Um, but, you know, 1 Corinthians 9, all things to all men, by all means possible, I might save some. Um, to me, the how of church is in many ways determined by the who, when, and where of culture. Now, I think there are marks of a biblical church. I, I write about six marks that I think every church should have, you know, in the Pokot in Africa and the in the Ebon in Malaysia and and in 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 the GTA, Grand Toronto area in Chicago, where I live. But a lot of that is locally, I'm a missiologist by training, it's missiologically determined. And in twice in the letters to the Corinthians, Paul actually encourages us even to take into account that there might be unbelievers among us. So I think that's a bit of a straw man. And a lot of times by the more theological crowd, which I hang with, um, they kind of create the straw man that, you know, don't do that. You're just, just preach the gospel and love people. And I'm, oh, yeah. I'm always, I'm always fascinated by people who say that because I really don't think they believe that because, because when they train missionaries, they don't say to them, hey, listen, we know you're going to another place and you don't know the language, but just preach the gospel and love people. Right. Um, no, they actually teach them to engage the culture where they're going. So we can't forbid North American churches to do the very thing we require international missionaries to do. And so I think that, that the, so what, what I would say, I think we should both be aware, you and I are friendly to more, um, to more seeker, I like to use the word seeker comprehensible. I want them to comprehend what's going on. Mm. And, and but, I, but I do think there are times that you and I would need to say, and probably 
should say and maybe have said, I have said, you know, I think in your desire to be so relevant and engaged, you may be creating a culture in your church that's actually working against where you want to take them, which is some life transforming reality. Because um, you've got to move people from, you know, from sitting in rows to sitting in circles. Those things take effort and you don't want to create a culture that is so, we're not going to bother you about anything that you don't actually move people to deeper maturity. And I, I just think and on our side of the movement, we would say, sometimes we got to say that, that that's true. Oh, yeah. I, I think that's absolutely true. And we've done some self-correctives over the years where, you know, we call audibles and go, that was too much consumer language. Like people are going to get the idea that the goal is to sit back, relax and enjoy the flight. That is not actually our mission at all. And I think in the way you welcome people, I think in the way you preach, I think in all those things. On the other hand, uh, you know, everything's a reaction to the previous generation. We, a lot of us grew up in churches where we're like, I want to bring my friend to church, but this will end in disaster. I know where this is going. And so we modernized, we improvised, we um, changed. And it's, it's interesting. So like even at Moody, there's an argument that people have that say younger adults, you know, people in their 20s and 30s, they're looking for the mystical, they're looking for the traditional, they're looking for the transcendent. What do you see in trends in churches among younger adults that almost in, in some way, I, I, I heard a voice in my head that said, and this is no offense to Saddleback, who's doing incredible work uh, to this day in California, but, you know, Saddleback would be a boomer's church and millennials would be way more interested in, say, Moody and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Okay, so my thoughts are, you know, I just, before we did this interview, I was with my daughter, my 20-year-old daughter, who came to me when we moved to Wheaton. She uh, she'd actually decided to go away to college. We lived in Nashville. She was very excited about being eight hours away from her family to go to college at Wheaton College. <laughs> and then a couple months after she decided, I said, hey, guess what? We're coming too. Yeah, um, yeah, so yeah. she... Well, I'll be she's the a dean. little that? exactly. So she's a little. She was a little uh, stunned, but she likes it now. But one of the things she said when she got here is she said she sat me down. It was a very serious conversation. I didn't know what was coming. She said, "Dad, I just want you know I love you, and I think you're a great pastor, and I really you know I love that you've been my pastor my whole life, but I want you to know I, I'm going to not go to y the church you go to or a church like yours here." And I and I'm and part of me is like, what does that mean? I mean, you're not going to go to church like mine. Are you joining a Wiccan coven? Yeah. Uh, you know what? What does that mean? So, so she tells me um, that she wants to go to. She's tired of the her words four chord rock and roll worship done poorly but loudly. And um, <laughs> she is uh, so she's an opera singer. And so I mean, like who's sung at you know uh, the symphony halls and. And so she loves Moody Church's music. She loves, um, she's actually now on staff of a church nearby, but College Church is near Moody, uh, near Wheaton, and it's a very traditional church. And she loves choirs and anthems and the things that I, as a young church planner, moved away from and encourage people sometimes to move away from. Now, but, but here's the thing. That's not the trend. Um, yes, your that, daughter is a minority, not the majority. Exactly. The va the really, there's only trend. Well, only one trend inside uh, evangelical Protestantism across the entire English-speaking Western world, and that is the trend to large contemporary 
churches, um, non-denominational, so large non-denominational contemporary churches with smoke machines. Um, actually, the last <laughs> thing wasn't true. But so because it's not, it's just not, it's not a true thing. But they are, it is large non-denominational contemporary. And I actually, uh, having heard, I mean, you asked this question because you, um, you know, you hear people say it. And so I actually uh, decided there was a, there was a formerly evangelical uh, author who had, uh, you know, moved away from evangelicalism and um, in her book about it had sort of said that, you know, young adults are attracted to, um, to, smells, uh, to and main, smells and bells, mainline Protestantism. And so I wrote an article in the Washington Post about it. Now, I recognize that the church that I cited uh, may be triggering for some people, uh, but it was, uh, so I actually, what I did is like a friend of mine runs the research department for the Episcopal Church. Now, the Episcopal Church would be a uh, a place where, you know, these kinds of smells and bells would be more evident. By the way, I came to faith in Christ in the Episcopal Church. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I called up the, um, the researcher there and I said, in the entire Episcopal Church, how many adult confirmations? And there's not an apples to apples you can do here, but there were 12,000 adult confirmations in the entire Episcopal Church in 2013 in a, with an attendance drop of 27,000. Now, so then I called up at the time, uh, Perry Noble, who was at New Spring Church. And in 2013, uh, they actually increased, they baptized more than 6,500 people and their worship attendance grew by 10,000. So <laughs> one so, church versus a whole denomination. A whole denomination. So so what's happening is, and again, I recognize that, again, the New Spring Church may, you know, because they're very, you know, we, 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 people know but the story. they've recovered very well. I talked to some of their team a few months ago. It's amazing. Yeah. And so, so what I would say is, that's the trend. The trend is to, you know, the life churches of the world or to whatever, you know, whatever that church may ultimately be. And, um, and it doesn't mean there aren't counter trends. So, you know, Wheaton College, there are, there are students here are becoming more liturgical. You know, that's, that's you know, and I, I came to Christ in a liturgical church, so I'm not anti that. So there's always movement within, but the big trend is actually not towards traditional or liturgical for young adults. And it's so good to hear you say that, because in those conversations, I found them interesting but frustrating, because I think we all know somebody who wants a liturgical stained glass type thing, and they're 25, and they're burned out on rock and roll church or whatever. Um, But my next question is, show me where that is attracting hundreds or thousands of young adults. And that's where it all goes silent. And then people go, well, I still know that's a trend. I'm like, I'm glad to hear you say that, that you've actually done some research in that area. And that's what you've found. And that doesn't mean that if you got 20 of those in your church, awesome. Those are 20 people who may not be reached. But if we're looking at what is going to be most effective as we move forward, it's, it's, it's better to look at what, you know, I'm a, I'm a utilitarian, the greatest good for the greatest number. How, how can we get this moving forward? Um, when you you uh, hold the Billy Graham chair at Wheaton, so you are front and center with the next generation of church leaders. What do you see in the next generation of church leaders that you love? Well, I think there's a deeper sense that they acknowledge that they start their, particularly if they're younger, they start their faith journey with a world that is going to not as readily accept them. And I mm. think when you start at that point, I think this is one of the reasons Pentecostals grew so much in the 20s and 30s, because they they just kind of said, you know what, we're kind of odd. You know, we actually think that we're speaking in another language and that God's miraculously intervening in the world. So we're odd. Let's tell everybody about Jesus and change the world. So I think that 
you know, Pentecostals included, the now I think all Christians are sort of acknowledging that to be the case. And I think the starting point that you are indeed a stranger and an alien and this world is not your home is a good place because there may be respectability. I mean, I guess, I mean, I'm at a respectable institution, but there may be respectability, but it doesn't come because you chase after it. You live faithfully for Christ. You'd be the best, whatever you are, truck driver, banker, doctor, lawyer. And in doing that, you still acknowledge that your faith is now out of the mainstream and you're going to live it because it's true and it's real and your life's been changed. Hmm. So you see that real sense of calling and that willingness to be outliers, which is encouraging. Are there enough next generation leaders? I mean, I've, I've heard stats from denomination, denominational leaders about the number of retirements that are coming up in the next 10 years, you know, people stepping out of ministry and the number of seminarians in the next few yeah. years. Uh, yeah. The numbers do not add up. What do you see? Well, I think I, I like the way I ask the question. I actually think there are not a lot, there are not nearly enough leaders. Uh, there are a lot of people who are professionally trained or theologically trained. But one of my concerns for this next generation is the is the overreaction against what might become be seen by some as kind of the obsession with leadership literature in the 90s yeah. that uh, everyone was, you know, thought, you know, Drucker was the fourth member of the Trinity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and what I would say is don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Water. You, I mean, you're a leadership podcast. I create leadership courses. I teach leadership at a graduate level. And I will tell you that one of the things that concerns me is that the younger leaders right now, again, remember you said it earlier, every generation kind of has to reinvent everything for themselves. Okay. So reinvent it for yourself, but at the same time, recognize that leadership is a skill. It can be learned. It's also an art. And if you don't take leadership seriously, you can know a lot and not go anywhere with it. And I think it really matters that we, that we think more about leadership. Oh, that's good to hear you say, you know, it's funny because I've always just been interested just the way I'm wired in leadership. And I'm shocked at, because it wasn't exactly like the leadership space was vacant when I started writing books and blogging and podcasting, but I'm just shocked at the raw appetite there seems to be for uh, resources, particularly the majority of listeners to this podcast are young American, young adult Americans between 25 and 40. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's interesting too, you know, as I, you know, I put together, of course I teach here at the graduate school and, you know, we actually have in our title, uh, leadership, you know, it's evangelism and leadership. Hmm. Um, so we, it's, we're stunned to have people want to study leadership and we're actually looking to the future. We've got processes to go through approvals, but we may even create a degree in global leadership specifically, but even through mission group, you know, I, I created a leadership course, uh, you know, strategic leadership for ministry and mission. And I have been, just shocked by how many people having gone through the course and watched it who say to me, um, you know, I've seen people intuitively do some of these things and, but to, but to now know what they're thinking, you know, one of the things you talk about like Cotter's change management, right? So I, yeah. I talk about, I mean, that's so, I mean, I say that and you're like, yeah, but you know, most people and most pastors and church leaders, what they don't even think about the idea that you have to start with by establishing a sense of urgency. And when they think, and they think, oh, wait a second, so I shouldn't just make change because I, I want to change? No, 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 no. And so I want to say them, like they're backing into a running airport. Say, no, 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 just stop. You've, you've got to establish a sense of urgency and then get some people on your team with you, you know, create a God and coalition, you know, and, and yet uh, you could literally say, if you would just do these, you know, few steps, you would be so much, and, and I kind of feel like I was talking to a pastor in Florida 
that kind of went through went through my course. And he said, it's all of a sudden I feel like all the things I wanted the church to be, I just realized that I just wasn't leading them to be that. I was preaching and teaching mm-hmm. and assuming that they they would evolve. He didn't use the word term evolve, but yeah, they, yeah. they would uh, they would become, they would, it just would emerge. Can we use emerge, evolve? I can't use any words today. Uh, but they, and, and what, and what, <laughs> what, something what he said, yeah. exactly. What he said to me was when I actually thought about how to lead people to this, it actually happened. So I got to tell you, we, we see in the Bible, God uses leadership. Now, the Bible is not a leadership handbook. The Bible is a story of God's redemptive purposes. But we see in the Bible people being used by God, and the leadership lessons are evident there. But then we can learn from our culture as well. And I think we're better churches, ministries, and more when we have healthy leaders. Well, and you mentioned John Cotter's leading change. I was so desperate as a 30-something pastor when I started out. That book had come out a couple years earlier, Harvard Business School, I'm like, I'm, that's what I'm doing. And I just read that book and I followed it. I mean, I read it over and over again. And then a few years ago, I wrote Leading Change Without Losing It, which took Cotter's principles and put it into exactly. church world. Yeah. So, so how is that not like, I mean, your book, I read your book. How is that not like issued? So I went through, I have four uh, graduate degrees from seminary, four, two masters, two doctorates. <laughs> Nobody talked about Cotter. And yeah. Cotter is like, like a junior management. I mean, if you're like a R in ROTC in the military, you're going to engage Cotter. If you're like in the junior management program, if you're going to have read Cotter, and yet, and again, people, some of you are thinking, you know, is this like magic Cotter? No, it's just simple. Here's steps to take to yeah. bring about change. And so it's kind of stunning to me because I really think it's hurt. I think a lot of people who would say, well, my church just didn't respond or they're carnal or whatever. No, it wasn't the church. It was you. You didn't lead well because you didn't value leadership enough to learn how to lead well. No, I, I could not agree more. And I mean, nobody in seminary taught me any of that stuff. And, you know, this was almost pre-internet in the late 90s. Yeah, we had dial up and, you know, but you couldn't watch Copy videos. There was content. Copy right there. Yeah, coffee serve. That's exactly yeah, it. AOL, you got those AOL uh, CDs in the mail. CDs those in the awesome. mail. It's like, exactly. well, how many hours of internet do you have left? Um, right? Anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, it was like, I'm going to grab onto anything I can. And I realized that how you do it is so critical to accomplishing what you're called to do. And there's a way to blow the whole thing up. And then there's a way to help. You know, leadership's hard. You're really requiring people to do something they wouldn't do ordinarily, but for the leader. Hey, we're going to go across the wilderness and into the promised land. Come with me. Nah, we're going back to Egypt, right? <laughs> anyway, what do you what do you um, see in the next generation that might concern or alarm you a little bit, Ed? You know, I, I don't, I have a, part of it may be where I am, to be perfectly fair. Yeah. So, you know, all these are like the students at Wheaton are the kind of the best and the brightest. And I don't think anybody would disagree with that. Just statistically, sure. these are the, the best and the brightest. So I see in them a deep desire to to change the world. And I and I love that. And of course, you know, I mean, I remember in college, I had a deep desire to change the world uh, as well. But in here, I see that that sense. They've made a choice to come to a, a Christian institution like Wheaton. This is what's called the covenant school. You actually have to uh, testify of your faith in Christ and sign a covenant about what it means to be in community. Um, so when I see that, you know, it's hard for me to be discouraged. I think uh, part if there's if there's any place where it may be, is I, I do think that for many, 
people, or let's just say some, uh, for some, that the concept or the idea that something is going to be difficult and painful has not been, I think, uh, adequately communicated to people. And right. uh, first of all, le- leadership in general is often just your willingness to lean into the pain that other people uh, refuse to lean into. But I was kind of struck by, uh, I know this is going to seem like a strange tangent, but Josh Harris's I Kiss Dating Goodbye mm-hmm. has been in the news. He's he's done this documentary and it's kind of been in the news and more. And, and I thought it was interesting kind of how he, um, the NPR uh, did a story on this. When NPR does a story on your documentary, uh, that's, a, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. And, and it, what was interesting was, I mean, he's sort of the normal, you know, the normal kind of regrets, some of the things about what others would call purity culture. But I really liked the closing. Um, actually, the, the, the reporter who, who wrote this is actually uh, a graduate of uh, Trinity International University, where Trinity of Adelaide School is. Now she works for NPR. But here's how she ended the story, just quoting Josh, said, um, he's reflecting back, but whatever. But just the, the line is so key. Um, I think it's made us realize how there's heartache and there's pain no matter what pathway you choose in life. There's no path you can choose that can protect you from that. And, wow. and I think – and I know he was talking about dating choices, but I was – I tweeted this because I was struck by the fact that I think um, a lot of people – you know, I grew up poor – you know, and, and, you know, our family received public assistance and things of that sort. So I just knew that life was going to be hard and difficult. Um, and I'd have to fight my way through things at times. I think sometimes uh, there's a there's a book called Our O-U-R Kids by Robert Putnam. It's a very important book. He's a he's at he's at Harvard. He wrote Bowling Alone. Everybody knows Bowling oh, yeah, Alone. Yeah. This, so this is his newest book. And I think that there's been a scissoring in society. And the most of the people going to be listening to your podcast are in the upper scissor, and they haven't experienced some of the pain and difficulty that people in the lower scissor have. And you so socioeconomically, I think in terms of a split socioeconomically. Yeah, and yeah. I do think that we've got to acknowledge that everything is is painful. There's working hard in school is painful. Uh, marriage is wonderful, and I have a great wife, but it's hard sometimes. Mm-hmm. Leadership is hard sometimes. Parenting I mean, is hard. Oh, parenting's, uh, you know, have you ever noticed that there is a 100% correlation between parenting and death? Everybody who parents dies. So I think there may be something <laughs> to this correlation between the two. I'm um, going to text but, Reggie Joyner right now. Hey, exactly, but this before it's too ex- late. Exactly, but, but mm. it's people don't realize that. And when you're not, so even back, you know, this is a leadership podcast. One of the things I, when I mentor some of my leaders here, I say to them, a big part of leadership is being willing to lean in to the pain. And so yeah. even, you know, Wheaton College is a very old and, uh, you know, established institution, very state institution. But there are some things that I needed to change so we could be successful. And and I said, um, we've got to change these things. And people said, well, they're not changeable. I said, well, we're going to lean into that pain. Well, you know, just today I talked to one of my one of my key leaders and he said, you know what? You It was a lot of pain, but that's changed now. So right. nothing gets nothing good gets happen with happens without some pain in the process. Hmm. No, that's really good. Well, also uh, we should link to Sam Chan's book on leadership pain. If leaders haven't read that, that is an incredible book on just that subject. Spends a whole book talking about it. So, add a hypothetical for you: young leader, you deal with them all the time. Comes to you, uber gifted, and he or she says to you, "Here's my choice." 
Uh, and let's say calling is open. There's no angel at the edge of their bed saying, hey, this is what you have to do with your life. But should I plant a new church? Or there's this church of, say, 500 that's plateaued. It's in a great neighborhood. They're not reaching the neighborhood. So my real choice is, do I plant something new or do I transition this church? I have an opportunity to do either. What advice might you give him or her? Well, it is my um, requirement that I would give the caveat that you would expect me to give, that you should pray and fast until the Lord makes it clear, because both of those are great opportunities. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, 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 that being said, um, I do think that it is easier to birth a baby than it is to raise the dead. Mm-hmm. And thus, I tend to exhort people that um, church planting would be a, um, an opportunity that you will more than likely reach uh, more people. You, you will have... Um, the opportunity to grow um, yourself and your leadership more in a church planning environment, um, and so so I would tend to. But you got to remember. So I, you know, I started. I was 21 years old, man. I moved to the inner city of Buffalo, New York, and I planted a church among the urban poor. But I, what I would say is, and I know I answered your question. I'm going to caveat it again. Is that I fell in love with church revitalization when I was a seminary professor. And I, I wasn't, yeah. seminary, my professor experience years ago wasn't the greatest experience. But this little church of old people, 35 senior adults, the median age was 68 years of age. Um, I loved journeying with them for two years through revitalization. It was amazing. But I will tell you, it's harder. And sometimes harder things are good. And sometimes it's okay. And so I've actually written more today on church revitalization than I have on church planting. And um, and I, I think that's partly indicative because I think there, as you look at the whole, there's actually more opportunity in revitalizing churches than we will be able to see through the planting of churches. Because there's, you know, 300,000 plus churches, a whole lot of revitalization needs, and we're planting a little over 4,000 a year. That's exactly why I asked the question, because you're kind of an expert. You're known both and, you know, the planting world and the revitalization world. And there's so many existing churches compared to church plants. So, no, I, pre- I appreciate that. But, um, hey, your your latest book is about um, your voice in, in an age of outrage, being the church in an age of outrage. And I know you've been very vocal on that. Um, but you were also uh, very active and vocal um, during the whole um, Me Too uh, movement that's been happening over the last year, year and a half. Um, curious. I'd really like to explore that. And I really, I just want to say, I appreciated your voice in the midst of that as one of the men who was speaking out. I'd love to hear what you observed, what you felt and what you've learned through that whole process. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I, I really love Andy Crouch's book on power a lot. Mm. Just read an excerpt from that. It is powerful. Oh my gosh. I hate that. I, I, I hate Andy Crouch because he can just write like that. Um, <laughs> but I, I realized, uh, when I first, maybe I read an article first that I have, um, I have a lot of power for sometimes institutionally, you know, I was a vice president of Lifeway, um, you know, speaking platform, whatever. And when people hear that, they, people, people who don't like you will say, well, you're, you know, that's arrogant or whatever. It's really, it's just an acknowledge power. It just is. And sometimes we have, uh, more, because of our organization or our persona or whatever else it may be. But I love that one of the things he said is that power is given for the benefit of the flourishing of others. And so what I found is, is that um, 
I mean, there are some areas that Christians maybe haven't found a way to engage in, and they need somebody to say, somebody that they trust, that they see as, I don't even know what you call mainstream, and 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 certainly as evangelical, I'm a mainstream evangelical, I'm on the, I'm on the board of the National Association of Evangelicals. So, um, so what I try to ask sometimes is, is there something that I could, I mean, I'm not a I'm not starting the conversation. They already exist. But so what I did, it we, we actually had a summit in December at Wheaton, uh, the Billy Graham Center, sponsored along with our School of Psychology and uh, here at, at Wheaton College. And and a reporter came up to me, and I actually, uh, she's a, g- a good reporter, and I actually came to the meeting, which was helpful. And she said, can I, uh, can I ask you some questions? I said, listen, I would rather you talk to, you may have noticed, basically what I'm doing is I'm holding the mic for other people. And in the summit, we had um, the majority of speakers were women. Uh, we had um, the majority of speakers were survivors. We had pastors there. We had, um, and, and what I wanted to do with this reporter wanted me to comment. And I'm like, I, I'm here. I want you to hear from uh, Beth Moore, who shared her heart, or, or, or someone, you know, Jeanette Salguero, who maybe is not as well known as Christine Kane, who was also there, or Laurel Bunker. Um, but, and, and even to the point where, you know, Kelly Rosati, actually there said for the first time publicly identified that she had been a survivor of what they call CSA, childhood sexual abuse. And uh, and so did Max Licato. I mean, Max Licato at our summit shared, I mean, how many millions of books has Max Licato uh, published, you know, and, and we've all heard his voice. And, and so he shared that and it was a very powerful time. So the reason I wanted to do that was, is that I think this is a bigger issue than people realize yeah. and churches don't know how to address it because they, they kind of see, you know, well, Me Too is a Hollywood thing and maybe we're not like Hollywood or or maybe we don't you agree with everything that somebody says. But at the end of the day, if you have these numbers of people who have been abused and harassed and more in their church, I think it's really important that they have space and place to speak up and to heal. And, and might I add, we make some changes in the church that address some of these yeah. issues. So, for me, it's having a place where, you know, we planned this in two months and, you know, I texted some friends. And so I recognize I have some some of that power for good or for bad. So I just wanted to use it to say, hey, there's a conversation going on that a lot of people in your church are hurting through and in. And that's why I wanted to I wanted to do that. And so, well, actually, you know, we've been following up some series uh, writings at Christianity Today on this as well. I just think that it's important. We need that human flourishing. I think that really matters. Hmm. What do you think, like when you think about using your voice, what what are some really helpful ways to use your voice as a leader? Because all of us have influence. You know, most of us don't hold distinguished chairs or, you know, whatever, but we all have power of some kind, whether that's in a church of 50, a church of 50,000, whether that's through podcast, et cetera, whatever, whatever it happens to be, we all have a voice. What are some really good ways to use your voice these days? And then what in your view are like, just please don't go there. Please don't misuse your voice that way. Yeah, this is part of what I, in, in Christians in the Age of Outrage, this is, a, this is kind of the theme. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I think for, for evangelical Christians, now in the States, it's a little different than Canada. We have a, a, a different political reality where evangelicals are still a pretty prominent cultural and political force. No one yes. really is worried about evangelical power in Canada. Um, oh. And so, yeah, it's just, it doesn't, you know, I mean, they're, 
It's just There's not five the of same us thing. here, so yeah. <laughs> you know, it's fine. Well, you know, and, and so you know, so Trudeau, you know, is is uh, he, by the way, he attended an Alpha course. So there you go. He's got some I didn't some know of that. his life. Yeah, he's, a, he's an Alpha graduate, and uh, it's fascinating to see or what took or what didn't take uh, with that. But you kind of know that people don't see. Um, they, they don't see in Australia either um, just as a, as a threat. Matter of fact, I think uh, I'm trying to remember the last, uh, t- who was it? Tony Abbott in Australia was a very devout Catholic and, and nobody cared. It's not because he wasn't going to, to do anything that was going to be a, going to be a problem as well. Or hmm. um, so, so even in, in, in your, in, in your nation, you, you know, see similar uh, Stockwell day characters in the past. Yeah. Um, but, but here, evangelicals are still seen as a someone that could threaten the liberty of other people. So here's what I would say. I think, again, um, I think it's really essential that we would acknowledge that we have um, lost in many ways the privileged position and culture. We've lost our home-filled advantage, and we need to uh, speak about and on what it looks like to live more as missionaries and less as uh, kind of guards of the culture. Because I think mm. in Christendom, we were sort of the moral guardians who make people make sure people don't step in or step out of line. Here, I think we're missionaries. This is not our home. And we think ultimately that we want to live in that way. So a big part of the framing of this, and so for example, one of the examples, matter of fact, I spend a whole chapter on digital discipleship. I think people's social media really doesn't help them if they don't have it under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Um, mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, I've seen people, I've seen some of the most horrible things said on social media that I click on the link to just look at the bio and it lists follower of Jesus, disciple, pastor, whatever. Yeah. And I'm like, are you kidding? Um, and so what I would say is, is don't be discipled by your cable news choice. Don't be spiritually shaped by your social media feed, but instead interact in ways that build bridges as Jesus would have you. Let me give you an example. Um, you know, it's, and again, in the U.S., there's very much of a bipolar reality. There's Democrats yes. and Republicans, and it's different in, in Canada and other places. But um, but even so, you know, if you're in a, you know, if you're in Alberta, which is very politically different than than Quebec, but anywhere you are, you have people who differ than you. All Albertans mm-hmm. don't vote one way and all people in Illinois don't vote one way. So, well, what happens is, is because it's, elections matter. You should care about elections. Is people, like I've seen neighbors, start posting, you know, you become friends with Facebook, because, on Facebook with your neighbors because you saw them at a picnic or whatever. And then as elections come, they get more and more angry. And basically what they're posting is how stupid people who disagree with them are. Yeah. And and in doing so, you're basically saying to your neighbor, literally one door down, you're an idiot. Or anyone you're going to reach in your church, you're an idiot. Exactly. And so how would you successfully seek to engage them when they just read how stupid you think they are? Now, I think you can say, you know, I think it's better in uh, Illinois. I could say, for example, Illinois, we have some of the highest taxes in the U.S., though it doesn't look like anything compared to Canada. Um <laughs> But uh, but but we don't have nationalized healthcare. So I, I think I could say um, something that even my neighbor might disagree with. I might say, you know, I really I hate to see the slow business growth in Illinois that's not providing opportunities for people through work because our taxes are so high. I think that's right. a 
a statement that somebody could make. Um, and it's not the same as these are a bunch of liars, cheats, and idiots. Now, for me, you know, I actually am a little even more cautious. And as pastors, I would say, be even more careful um, because you're going to have to I – wrote, I wrote an article – Again, I keep using U.S. examples, and I, most of your listeners are U.S. No, but during it's ninety percent. Yeah, don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So during like like North America, ninety percent U.S., and then yeah. Canada is is the hat. Um, the <laughs> and it's a great. I love the maps that you know that have the U.S. as an island surrounded by water, and uh, there's no <laughs> Canada or Mexico. <laughs> I've not this. seen that. Okay. You haven't seen those? Oh, I got some. No. I got, I'll have to send you some of these America centric maps. Um, but the uh, we had these hearings. Between, uh, I mean, not between is the wrong term. So ju- Justice, now Justice Kavanaugh in our country. Oh, yeah. And there were some accusations, credible accusations that came forward. Some later recanted, but not some of the most important ones. Uh, very, um, we saw uh, Professor Ford testify to this. Oh, yeah. And I got to tell you, I watched this. I think a lot of Americans did. I, I believed Professor Ford. Um, and I watched it. And then I believed Judge Kavanaugh. And I watch these things. I'm like, what am I supposed to do? And here's right. the great thing that I wrote. You don't have to do anything. It is not, you're not in the Senate. You are not going to vote on this. And if I got up and said that, because um, I, I had actually written beforehand and been quoted in the Atlantic before these accusations came forward, that I was glad that Judge, uh, Judge Kavanaugh was nominated because I do, you know, I'm an evangelical in the U.S., a more conservative Supreme Court, I think is good. So I apologize for being a little political on your podcast, but but just to lay that out because because then all these accusations came out and people say, well, what do you think now? And I says, here's what I think now. I'm going to pastor a congregation with people who have different views on this, including a lot of women who feel that they wouldn't be believed if they came forward with a claim. I'm not in the Senate I don't have to make this decision. I decide to pastor people who differ on both sides of this issue. Yeah. And there are there are times and places it's okay to do that and to say the Christ-like thing is for me to be able to say, I don't know. I, I don't know enough to say. But if you have been in a situation where you feel you were harassed or abused or whatever, come to me and we'll go to the authorities together or we'll go to that person together. So I can, I can still walk through that because, again <laughs> – Posting stuff on Facebook, you are not changing the world. I know this is like no. big news, but you are not fixing everything with your Facebook and your Twitter posts. Yeah, no, that's very, very true. And uh, I think Keller, you mentioned him earlier, has done a phenomenal job. If you listen to the body of his preaching over a few decades, he's got Republicans and Democrats sitting next to each other in his church in New York City. And does a wonderful job of basically saying, God is neither, get along. And here are the things that we agree on. Fascinating. Ed, I got to ask you before I let you go, and this has been so helpful. You're a a prolific writer. I sense you're a voracious reader and also consumer of content. Everything from current affairs to studies to research to current books. I mean, all those books you trotted out. How do you make time for all that? Fair question. So first of all, it's a little smoke and mirrors. You know, I have, um, I think, including part-time people, I have 62 people who work for me. So um, really, they, yeah, so they do most of those things. So when I write an article, I might even record an article and then someone puts it in print and then somebody edits it and then somebody, um, so one of the things I've done, for example, every article now that I publish uh, at Christianity Today, I actually say at the bottom, the exchange team helped with this because I'm trying to give, I have such a great team 
Do people assume that I'm, you know, writing uh, by myself from beginning to end a thousand words a day? And I'm not. I mean, I don't publish. I mean, these are my ideas, but and they're my shaping of it. But you know, I mean, I have I have great editors who help me get across the finish line consistently. So when I walk to a meeting, I just hosted um, a group of missiologists, the the Send Institute Missiologist Council. Well, I have you know Daniel Yang who leads that, and he tells me here's what you're going to do, and and this is the time, and you know, so when you have people like that. And and then, you know, I was at a meeting years ago in Tulsa, nevertheless. I was just thinking of Tulsa because I'm speaking there in a few weeks. And the last time I was there, I was with Leonard Sweet. So this, I don't know, 10 yeah. years ago, whatever. So Len, we were doing this Q&A and someone asked Len this question, the very question you just asked. And, you know, how do you keep, what, what, you do, what, what do you suggest I read? And so he starts going through this list that is, because Leonard Sweet is, he's a genius. I mean, just so brilliant. And so so then he answered the question and they said to me, well, what would you add? And I would say, well, I would, I would actually say do the exact opposite than what Leonard Sweet just told you. And, and Leonard looked at me and we all laughed because my job and Len's job is to be informed on these things. Right. And there's a, there's a Yiddish word, it's maven. So my job is, and your job too, you do this. But I think when people see, let's say a pastor sees that we're quoting from the New York Review of Books or we're quoting from Christian Century or we're quoting from whatever, um, they kind of assume and maybe try to emulate that. And I think I would much rather you know the hearts and struggles, the fears and joys of your people and read them than you know all the cutting edge cultural realities that I am literally paid to know because I'm a professor. Um, so I'm a professor with 62 people. So that carves out time for me to know things and to write things. And most of our listeners are pastors and staff members who don't have researchers and editors, but they have yeah. people that they love and they have a community that needs Jesus. So what I would say is read to the degree that you can't always be, you know, le- read readers or learners. And, and that's, and that's key, you know, learners or leaders. We've always, you know, those cliches, they're all true. But what I would say too, is also rely on some mavens like you to even help curate some of those ideas so that uh, we can also not think our job is not, you, my job is not to be as smart as Leonard sweet because <laughs> this, his job is to be smart so that he can help the rest of us. Interesting. Okay, that is a refreshing answer. One of the challenges I've had, and I mean, you get to a certain level where it can get overwhelming to have the responsibilities that you have. And this is a pretty active issue for me. I write all my own stuff, uh, except the show notes, which is run through an editor for this podcast, but I still write all my own stuff. And the challenge, of course, is to find someone who writes and thinks like you. Like, obviously, when you write in your blog, The Exchange, if it has Ed Stetzer in the byline, or you're writing something for The Washington Post or The New York Times that has your name on it, you don't want to be scrolling through one day or looking at your social feed going, oh my gosh, like, I didn't say that. Whoa, that is not me at all. How do you, because this is good for research teams, for content creators, how have you cure? Obviously, you probably have final say, but how do you curate a team to think, look, and uh, collate in a way that you are confident yeah. contains the essence of your thinking and your approach and your worldview? Well, I think the key is is I both start and finish, and so gotcha. so what I typically do is like so I, I have a you know you have an iPhone I got an iPhone so yeah. someone will ask me a question. Um, 
and they'll ask me a question and what I'll, what I'll say to them is, hold on a second, I'll turn on the recorder and I'll say, here are three things I think about that. And so, so that's the start. And then my, uh, you know, I have a, we have a transcribe. You can use rev.com is what we yeah. use. It's, yeah, do- we it's do. a dollar a minute. Yep. Same thing. And then what happens is it goes to, uh, our editor who then puts that together and cleans it up because nobody talks in proper grammar. They interrupt themselves. They redirect their thoughts. So then they fix it. But then my job is I, I, I would never, uh, let somebody just um, ghostwrite something that, and boom, put it here. So, well, yeah. you know, I, I'm, I'm, uh, that's what I figured. You know, I'm right. Right. I'm resistant to that. I think it needs to be careful because, um, it's not just even your, voice. I mean, there's an integrity issue as well. hundred um, percent. So, so for me, it starts with almost always an audio file. So literally I can, uh, uh, you, I mean, you people can't see, but I'm actually looking at my voice memos. I have 42 voice memos over the last week or so where I've stopped and thought something and recorded it. Uh, so, so, so basically from there they edit and then I try to bring in, cause I like to tighten uh, sentences and pan transitions. And I think I have a certain pithy style, whether it's good or bad. Yeah. But there's a signature way that every author writes. Yeah. And every speaker yeah, speaks. Yeah. I get it. Yeah, You really, you really can't have people. Well, I, I guess people do it, but I can't have people write for me. Um, I agree. and, and, uh, I mean, I, if someone says, you know, can you, you know, let's write a letter to, the you, the governor asking to you so and so that's that's a different thing right you can have you'll have your assistant do that or whatever um, but if you're making an argument I can't have somebody else make my argument um, I have to um, make my argument at start and ultimately bring it at the finish right so you have help in the middle and that makes sense okay. because yeah. you know otherwise you're at the point where you know like Tony Morgan has done a good job of this he has five or six writers but they write under their own name. So today yeah. you're going to hear from Tiffany DeLuca. Tomorrow you're going to hear from me. The day after you're going to hear from X. So that makes sense. Okay, yeah, that, and that's really that good. If I, if I, and if I think, let's say I did a recording and I see it on the other side and I'm like, you did more than, you know, content edit. You did, you didn't just reframe this. You've added things, significant things. What you'll find is, is that person, Ed Stetzer and that person is, uh, and so I'm very comfortable giving away uh, yeah. a byline and sharing a byline. Um, and if someone writes something on their own, that's, that's great too. Um, but yeah, so I think, I think it's key. Again, part of that is because I've written so much, I don't have to, um, take all the, the credit, uh, at that point. And I'm not saying, again, I'm going to be clear. I'm not saying that people haven't written a thing that, that was helpful and we use for this or for that as researchers can gather this data for us. I, it, it's, it's more just about how can you, for me, I just want to elevate others and I'm at the space where I can do that in a way that's very easy, simple, and positive. Yeah, that's good to know. Do you, so in your reading, in your content consumption, do you do like Blinklist or that kind of thing where you just get a summary of a book or do you just nope. read books? Do you read the whole thing? Do you speed read? What do you do to get through that much content? I, I speed read and then I slow down at places that I find are significant. I I find that most authors really have a book that should be about the third the size of the book that they wrote. Right. And so, you know, I can kind of get a feel for that quickly, but some of them don't. I mean, your books, every word matters. Um, well, but thank you. You can you come go. back on the podcast now. I That's think. right. So I was yeah, going for it. So I was going for it. Thank you. But, but, but I do think that um, that for others – 
is, uh, you know, there's just sometimes, sometimes, and that's, you mentioned like the, the, the summaries, some books really just should have been a summary and it shouldn't have been. (laughs) Or it was an article, right? That should, it was a 3000 word article. That's now a 40,000 word book. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you can, you can get through that fluff. Um, your rhythm of your day, you morning person, evening person. person. Not a morning no. person, evening person. Um, yeah, I don't like mornings. Don't like to get up early. Um, my wife is a morning person. One of the many ways that God laughs at us. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so, what's what's uh, what's a typical wake up time for you? Because this uh, is this is refreshing to a lot of leaders who are listening. Because yeah. the majority of people who end up doing what you do and I do are, end up being morning people. Yeah. So they're going, yes, thank you, Ed. Please. I bet uh, you're so, you're a morning you're a morning person, oh, yeah. aren't you? Redi- oh, I hate you. Early. But yeah, how how early you. do you get up? How early do you? Uh, get up? You know, in the fu- in the summer, it's really early, like four forty five, five a.m. Oh it's between oh five God. and five thirty. I know you're probably just going to bed, but what what's Dude, early for not, you? There's 8 not, there's not there's not even a four on my clock in the morning. It's, it's <laughs> my clock just turns off. No, I guess you know. I mean, I'm sixes somewhere in the sixes. Um, you're part of it because family life. You know, we we just yeah. kind of kind of do our thing. If I had my druthers, I didn't have kids and a wife and, and responsibilities and office, I'd probably sleep. I'd probably stay up to like two and three and get up at eight. Uh, but you know, it doesn't work that way when I got three dogs and my, my daughters are up and about and, you know, we, we have a, you know, our house is uh, 2,300 square feet. It's not when people, you hear each other. So, so probably in the sixes is when I'm are yeah. getting up at some point. No, that's good. You just made a lot of people feel better. And then will you work till after midnight? Or, or be up till after midnight? It, it depends. I'm not one of those people who get four to five hours of sleep and it's okay. I sleep yeah. a normal amount of time. Right. And so if I'm getting up at six, I'm going to bed at 10. Um, and oh, so, yeah, yeah and I, I think and I think there are really people, you know, people debate this and there's even scientists who debate this. No one can really get four to five hours of sleep. And I know people, maybe they're lying to me. I know people who can. I am not among them. Yeah, uh, me neither. Yeah, I, I want to be seven. rested. Yep, seven or Minimum. eight, I can do seven or eight. But you know, if I, if I have more than eight, I'm, I'm actually, I don't like it. I, I don't like to sleep more than eight. But if I don't get, like I know now, and I I was, I think it was one of those Jason Bourne books, you know, one of those spy books. Yeah. And in there he says, is a weapon. I'm like, how is it a weapon? He said, well, if you don't get sleep, you're totally ineffective everything else. So I actually think that. Now when I'm planning a flight, I'm thinking, man, I got to get there early enough so I can speak the next morning. If I get five hours, I am not going to be as effective speaker as if I get eight yeah, hours. Yeah, do you find that you? you I, I will slur my words if I'm not well rested. Yeah, yeah. For mm. me, it's it's I'm as a speaker, I'm kind of very spur of the moment. You know, some might call me, you know, you know, attention deficit disorder. It's like squirrel. You know, I, I'm, I yeah. bounce around a lot, and but in my bouncing around, that's where my wit comes from, which people really right. like when I speak. But if I'm not rested. I don't have the quickness to kind of be that. And so basically I revert back to more of a manuscripty kind of thing. And that's just not good. I just need to get the rest. I hear you too. My comedy comes in the spontaneous. And yeah. if I'm not rested, if I, if I haven't eaten properly, if I haven't taken good care of myself, it's just not as good. Yep. Um, that's good to know. Well, Ed, uh, <laughs> this, is, this has been awesome. Um, so we could have done... Hear- Three three hours. Easy. Yeah. So we'll have you back. But I know people are going to want to know more about you. Uh, tell us about a couple of projects you're working on and then the easiest place to find you online. Well, the couple projects I'm working on now is uh, I'm writing my next book, which would be on evangelicalism and its future. Uh, it'll mm-hmm. be with InterVarsity Press. And uh, in some ways, a manifesto of what 
what it's going to look like as we kind of walk through the cultural challenges we're in. You know, it's a, I think of myself as kind of a cultural navigator in the midst of a very aggressive storm. Um, yes. So, so I'll, 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 that's what I'm working on now. We, of course, here at the Wheaton College Graduate School, we're very excited to see um, the growth. You know, the program I was leading last year, I'm now the dean, but last year I was leading our program. We've uh, quadrupled in three years. Excited to have students wow. like uh, Canadians like uh, Ann Voskamp. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Matt Chandler's a student here now. Um, you know, we've got just a and, and, and lots of people you never heard of who are brilliant and smart and just great. So, cause we offer, you know, our classes, you could, people fly in and fly out. So it's not fully online. That's, we, 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 find people want to be in some learning community and, yeah. and, uh, and we get that we get, we're not anti that. You've Skyped me into one of your classes. I have Skyped you and, and yeah. exactly. I love having you. It was great. Um, and the, uh, and so excited about that. And then the Billy Graham Center, we're just trying to help people show and share the love of Jesus. You know, we've got our annual Amplify Conference that has been such a key thing for us. It's the largest gathering every year now in North America focused on outreach and reaching people. Great. And that takes place in the summertime. People can find me at edstetzer.com. Pretty easy to find, edstetzer.com. And, uh, and it's just a little fun. S-T-E-T-Z-E-R. Thank See? you. I speak in I got it. I got it. I'm bilingual. Um, hey, you got a couple of courses too. You and I both released a Breaking 200 course around yeah, the same right. time. And that's I right. always encourage people to buy yours and you always say nice things about mine. But you got a leadership course as well. Tell us more about that. Yeah, that's been the one that I, I really see making a lot of impact on people too hmm. at just a, a level that changes them. You know, breaking 200 barrier, both of ours, people break the 200 barrier. Um, but they and that, and that question can be settled. There's things they learn for the future, but leadership is something that is an ever-going experience of growth. And so I have a course called Strategic uh, Leadership for Ministry and Mission, where basically I take what I teach at the graduate level, and I it's a video curriculum with 50 you know, bonus items, all those different things, so that people can really increase their leadership capacity. And I've had, you know, deans at a seminar use it. I've had the head of a Christian corporation use it, and hundreds of people use it in churches and uh, yeah, so that, that's one and kind of in a space you and I are in. That leadership, I, I am one who believes, and you know, people might not know there's a debate, is leadership, you know, nature or nurture, can you learn it or not? I think that even people who think you, that some people are natural born leaders, and I think mm -hmm. there probably are, everyone can be a better leader with some training, and that's what we try to provide. And you know what, and I think that's true. I'm a, many people would say I'm a natural born leader, but I've become a much better leader because I've sharpened the skill saw. And then there are other people who really maybe don't have the natural gifting and they may never, you know, lead something huge, but that doesn't mean they can't lead and that doesn't mean they can't get better at it. So I love that. We will link to all of that in the show notes, the books, everything we talked about. Ed, thank you so much. You've been very generous with your time today. So great to see you again. And I'm sure I'll see you somewhere speaking on the road. You betcha. Thanks, Ed. Well, there is a lot there. I mean, wouldn't you say? And if you want to drill down more, there are transcripts. Head on over to the show notes, which you'll find at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 237. If you can't spell that or remember it, just uh, Google leadlikeneverbefore.com or head on over there and then type in Ed's name and you will find the show notes to this. Pretty simple. And uh, everything is there available for free, including transcripts. So I know a lot of you use this to discuss with your team. Hey, if today's episode has helped you, would you share it with people? Just put it on your socials, 
uh, message a few friends with uh, the link. And that helps us get the word out there. We had the best year ever last year. We're looking forward to an even better 2019. And if you want a better 2019, I'm giving away the High Impact Leader Calendar for free. It's the exact calendar that I have used for the last 13 years to help me maximize my productivity and frankly, enjoy my life. Like it has easily 10x my productivity. Plus I got a training video for free that you can look at uh, on, on how to use it and how I use it. So head on over to thehighimpactleader.com, download the free resource now. It is going to go away as a free resource very soon. And once again, you got to jump in the digital game. This actually is 2019. And the people who can help you with that are Pro Media Fire. So uh, even if you have staff, like we have staff online, like in, in our creative department, but we still outsource a chunk of it. And I want to encourage you to explore that this year. So head on over to promediafire.com forward slash carry, and you can save 10 to 40% off their unlimited plans for churches uh, for really cloud-based creative teams. They can produce socials, graphics, videos, all that stuff for you for one very reasonable monthly fee. And you can save 10 to 40% promediafire.com slash carry. And uh, that'll get you right there. Well, next week, we are back with a fresh episode. We have a great lineup for January. And what have we got for you? That is a great question. We have Lisa Turkhurst, powerful, moving interview, personal, vulnerable, raw. I'm sure most of you, if you're in the church space, have heard of Lisa. If you haven't, you need to get to know her. And uh, one of the themes I'm going to develop on this podcast uh, this year is that a lot of us as guys, just speaking as a guy, we're like, oh yeah, you know, I have this big audience, et cetera, et cetera. You know what I learned last year? That there are so many female leaders whose audience size would just boggle the mind of most leaders. It's just crazy. I have a long conversation actually with Annie F. Downs about that later in the year. That's coming up in February. But Lisa would be one of those people. Six to eight million people access her content every day. And she has been through the ringer and back over the last three years. And I talked to her about leading and living through a personal crisis, through disappointment, and even trying to figure out what parts of your life should be personal, private, or secret. Well, I'll let her, here's an excerpt from next week's interview. God, God placed me in ministry knowing what I would eventually walk through, but not just for my sake. I believe it's because he heard the cries of so many people and he knew they would drown in their own tears if not for seeing a glimmer of hope in my tears. So God didn't cause this, but he did allow it. And um, yeah, I would have never been brave enough to choose to this journey. I, I would have never, ever done it on my own. So God allowed it though. And I, and I, I really feel like God has not cursed me with this. He has entrusted me with this. Wow. So even though I would not never, ever want anyone to have to walk through this, I will be a faithful steward of even this. So that's next week uh, right here on this podcast. Again, subscribers, you get that automatically. John Gordon is also coming up. Energy Bus, you know, John, powerful story. Ian Morgan Cron, Gary Chapman, Frank Bueller, Rich Birch, Annie F. Downs, John Ortberg, so many more. Lots of good reasons to subscribe. And we're just going to bring this to you every week for free. 
And thanks to our partners who help us do that. Guys, I hope it's uh, been a great first full week of 2019 for you. Can't wait to hang out again soon. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.